Thank you, Alan, and good evening. I'm Fred Paul, and you're watching ADH TV, the new home for common sense commentary in Australia. Well, let's get straight into it because I've got a great show for you tonight. I've got Mike Hewitt, a former Rear Admiral of the United States Navy, who's now selling modular small nuclear reactors, which could solve Australia's imminent energy crisis while not compromising on our commitments to the admittedly batty net zero targets. Mike sees the energy crisis through two prisms, providing energy to those who need it and the geopolitical battle to exercise influence over emerging nations, which will determine what the world looks like in the coming decades in the same way that oil shaped the world in the 20th century. I've also got the articulate and thoughtful Rocco Loyacano on everything from the virtues of Catholicism to the reasons why the opposition is failing in the polls. If I'm right, he might find the two are actually related. We will also revisit a woke watch from last week, which left an important question unanswered. What is the 2S in 2SLGBTQI? And in a second, I'll have another look at the many failures of the COVID response, which are only going to become more and more exposed. There must be editors in large media organisations right now contemplating when it will be safe for them to finally admit that they got it terribly wrong. Or perhaps they never will. Now let's get into it. The most astonishing aspect of the COVID, COVID pandemic was the audacious way governments assumed an increased responsibility for the health of their citizens. This had never been a part of Australian culture before, or the culture of any liberal democracy for that matter. But all of a sudden, there they were, assuming they knew what was best for each, of, each one of us health-wise. This was bad enough, but the moral superiority that accompanied it was even more nauseating. One of the most obnoxious examples of this, and there are many to choose from, is the tweet posted by Queensland Premier Anastasia Palaszczuk on October 13 last year. Addressed to Queenslanders who hadn't had their first dose of the vaccine yet, it said in a passive aggressive italic graphic, we've done all we can to keep you safe, but this next step is up to you. We cannot protect you if you won't protect yourself. I need you to get vaccinated and I need you to do it now. It takes five weeks from the first dose to be completely vaccinated. Five weeks from today is the 17th of November. That's getting very close to Christmas. The threat could not have been clearer. Get jabbed or you'll be spending Christmas day eating a turkey sandwich alone, you ungrateful vermin. Palaszczuk wasn't the only condescending megalomaniac to make these kinds of threats, but she certainly set the standard for the most matronly tone throughout most of the pandemic. How a whole generation of politicians assumed the same virtually unprecedented power simultaneously, even imbuing it with the authority to decide who gets to enjoy Christmas, is a matter that I'll have to look at separately another time. For now, it's their audacity that is being exposed. If you're going to assume so much responsibility over other people's health, then you really should know what you're doing. Turns out they didn't have a clue. The Australian Bureau of Statistics released the nation's provisional mortality statistics 
on August 26, and they are an utter indictment on the pandemic response. In the first five months of this year, the mortality rate of Australians was 16.6% higher than the average for the previous five years, excluding 2020 for a reason I'll explain in a minute. So every level of government in Australia intruded on the health decisions of their citizens and the result was not a decrease in mortality, but an increase. If ever there was a case for the reduction of the size of government, this is it. The Bureau of Statistics figures are these. The main increased causes were Alzheimer's and diabetes, both up 20% for the first five months of the year, and cancer up 6%. There were about 75,600 total deaths in Australia during the first five months of the year, which was about 10,800 more than usual. That is an extra 415 deaths per week. Now, to be fair, some of those deaths were simply postponed by the lockdown in 2020. These were people suffering terminal conditions that were sadly never going to be cured. But that decrease in 2020 was only 4%, whereas the increase so far this year has been 16.6%. When the Telegraph in London reported two weeks ago that there had been an extra 1,000 people dying per week because of the delayed effect of the lockdown, it was front page news. But when a similar rate per head of population is reported in Australia, silence. You can understand a certain reluctance to admit that the lockdowns and vaccines caused more harm than good, given that the media pushed them so fervently. The ABC said last month that of all the people who died during the pandemic, only 2.3% died with COVID. And of those, only 82% actually died of COVID, not with it. The government needed to inflate the figures to make them seem scary, but even then, they didn't justify the lockdown. While some media outlets are quietly reversing their stance on the lockdowns and vaccines, others are doubling down. The ABC reports today, for example, that there have been 11 COVID deaths in Australia today. It doesn't say whether those deaths were with or from the virus. A year ago, 11 deaths in a day would have been enough to identify the source of the outbreak, isolate it, send in police and troops, and then allow masked TV journalists to roam the streets to make sure nobody had snuck out for a healthy walk in the park. The reason we don't do that anymore is that the public have finally realised, even if some journalists haven't, that the pandemic was used by governments to increase their power, by Big Pharma to increase their profits, and by the media to hang on to their dwindling readerships. One columnist in the West Australian today referred to Premier Mark McGowan embarrassingly as, quote, state daddy. This is the Premier who locked the state down, but failed to stop the virus from entering the state. The columnist said, quote, after the proposed Royal Commission, we will have a better, a much better estimate of how much exponential death and disability was prevented over the last two years by our state dad's prompt actions. Well, after today's mortality statistics, we already have proof that the lockdowns and vaccines caused an increase in deaths. 
Lord Jonathan Sumption, a historian and former British Supreme Court judge, said in the Times of London recently, quote, Throughout history, fear has been the chief instrument of authoritarian rule. During the lockdown, it was what enabled the government to silence dissent and inhibit discussion, unquote. That the media ever went along with this is astonishing. They might like to get on board the backlash before the spotlight turns on them too. Now, last week I mentioned Canadian Prime Minister Justin Trudeau's declaration of the new equality in Canada. He said, quote, Canada gets a little bit stronger every day that we choose to embrace and to celebrate who we are in all our uniqueness, unquote. This press release was titled, quote, First Federal 2SLGBTQI Plus Action Plan to continue building a more inclusive future with pride, unquote. The video of this woke watch went viral on Facebook and among the comments was a question from a woman called Tanya who said, quote, what does the 2S mean? To which a bloke called Chris replied, two hands out for the money. Chris is correct, of course, but the official meaning is two spirit which is a North American Indian person who identifies with a third gender, or something like that. Apparently, this custom was adopted by gays and lesbians in 1990. How much further back before then this spiritual anomaly goes is anyone's guess. It's probably about as old as the welcome to country is in Australia, which dates back to the ancient 1970s. But the two hands out for the money isn't far off the money as it happens. The New South Wales government has just announced it will support an expansion of the gay Mardi Gras in Sydney next year into what it calls Sydney World Pride 2023. It, it is conveniently timed to follow the Pride Festival in Victoria in December and January, and both are heavily funded by their state governments. And while the funding the government spends on it will be returned many times over by international tourism, it is still the sort of woke narcissism that most of us would prefer not to have taking over our streets. Countless major corporations in Australia will get behind the festivals, flaunting their gay credentials like glitter at a Kylie Minogue concert, and the war against homophobia, but the, the war against homophobia was won decades ago. It's time to give up all this narcissistic exhibitionism. Celebrate if, who you are if you like, but don't kid yourself you're being liberated in the process. You were liberated ages ago. The energy crisis currently destroying lives and businesses in Europe will soon arrive in Australia. Let's go through a few facts. Energy prices in Europe have tripled this year and are 10 times higher than the five-year average. 8.5 million British households are facing energy poverty, which is defined as a household spending more than 10% of their income on energy. Power prices in Britain are expected to rise another 80% this month alone. The Don't Pay UK movement is aiming to enlist a million consumers who refuse to pay their power bills. And the German government has responded to power shortages in the typical way, promising to spend 65 billion euros on helping people and businesses pay their power bills. 
As everyone knows, this is not the solution. Just as the cause of this crisis is not solely Russia's closing off of gas supplies to Europe. The crisis was caused by decades of loopy, anti-Western, anti-industrial energy policies that were actually intended to lead to this. The environmental religion behind net zero and renewable energy was never about maintaining the quality of life in industrialised nations. It was about reducing it. Well, on the eve of a, a horrific winter in Europe in which millions of people will freeze in the dark, the wishes of the renewable zealots are finally being granted. Millions will suffer as a result of this folly and thousands will probably die. Unlike global warming, if such a thing even exists, global cooling actually is bad for life on Earth, especially humans. The cold kills. Yet this is the road that Anthony Albanese and Chris Bowen want to take Australia. Wholesale prices are going up so rapidly for energy that in June, one Brisbane energy retailer told tens of thousands of customers to find a cheaper provider because its prices were about to go through the roof. Albanese and Bowen promised during the election campaign that they would reduce power bills by an average $275 a year, a promise they always knew they could never keep if they also remained committed to enforcing renewables onto the market. Well, my next guest is a retired United States Navy Rear Admiral, Admiral Mike Hewitt, who now runs a company selling what could be the best strategy for Australia to avoid Europe's fate, Small Modular Nuclear Reactors, or SMRs. Mike, welcome to the show. Fred, thank you for having me. Well, let's get straight to the point, Mike. How much do these things cost? How soon could you deliver them? And how much energy would they produce? So it's interesting with the advent of small modular reactors, there's over 450 large reactors operating around the planet today. But we've always realized that they weren't always the right solution for many of the emerging market countries. And so the industry itself has been developing what we call small modular reactors. Many of them were designed to address some of the inherent concerns over safety, but also building them in a factory, similar to an aircraft. And so you build them in a factory, you can tailor them to the amount of power that you need. In other words, I could tailor a reactor to desalinate water. I could tailor a reactor to create green hydrogen or power an oil refinery or mine ore in Australia. And the third thing is they're investable because we're going to create a small modular reactor where the risk of construction risk, which we've seen for the last 30 years in trying to build these large plants um, is really weaned out with the development of small modular reactors. So factory built, investable, I can match up the power to the application and the offtake so I can tailor the size of the reactor. And because they're smaller, I can put them in many places that I couldn't put a gigawatt size reactor. So what you're seeing around the planet right now is about 300 gigawatts of new nuclear capacity will be built in the next 30 years. And the vast majority of those power plants will be what we call small modular reactors. So, but just getting back to the original question, how much do they cost, Mike? Well, it's interesting because how do you, how do you define value for money? And so what they try to do is compare the levelized cost of energy 
against renewable energy or fossil fuel, the cheapest energy on the planet, the most reliable energy on the planet is fossil fuel. We've known this for a century. But nuclear power, because of its what we call capacity factor, so if you want to compare a gigawatt of nuclear power that runs 95% of the time versus a gigawatt of renewable energy that runs 35% of the time, that's the real comparativeness and cost that you, you need to make. So to answer your question very simply, we believe with the advent of small modular reactors, we'll be able to drive down the price to $50 to $60 a megawatt hour produced, which is very comparable to fossil fuel and even some of the um, renewable energy production. But again, renewable energy operates at a very low capacity factor. It's intermittent, it's weather dependent, and it's just not reliable compared to nuclear power. Well, in Europe at the moment, correct me if I'm wrong, fossil fuels are up in the hundreds of gigawatt, hundreds of dollars per gigawatt hour, is that correct? That, that's correct. You, you accurately captured at the beginning, their energy prices have tripled in the last year. And this was not caused by Putin's invasion of Ukraine. It was not caused by the pandemic. It was caused, as you accurately captured, a decade of, or so of oversubscription to renewable energy without the reliability, without the ability to store power. And the fact is, our, the reason we're in energy poverty right now is because we've oversubscribed to renewable energy and we have precipitously cut ourselves out of the only reliable energy source we have, which is fossil fuel. I'm, I'm intrigued by these things though, Mike. I mean, how, how big is an SMR and how quickly can you produce them? I mean, if, if we had a change of heart in our federal government and they said, okay, let's go SMRs, how soon could we see one delivered? Well, I think to, to be accurate, I would say you wouldn't see one in Australia until 2030 because a lot of the work that needs to be done to site to license, to prepare the locations, to match up the power with the need, takes a considerable amount of time. Now you will see small modular reactors operating in the UK, in the United States, and in other European nations before the end of this decade. So I think for Australia, Accurately spoken, it would be about 2030 to 2032. Well, there's a, a lot of debate here, a, a lot of people from the centre-right side of politics saying that if we are going to commit to, to net zero or reduced emissions, then we really need to develop a nuclear strategy. What you're saying is that the urgency is, is greater than ever because if it takes seven years to get one installed, then we'd better get cracking. I find it interesting that Australia has a prohibition on nuclear power, particularly because you are the third largest producer of uranium on the planet, which is the energy source for nuclear power. And now you're going to be the seventh nation to pursue nuclear submarines, but you're the only nation that doesn't have a civil program. It makes no sense to me that a country that's pursuing nuclear submarines would not have a civil program to support it. And, and the fact is, when you look at what we've tried to do since the Paris Climate Accord, where we've allowed renewable energy, unfettered access to capital, subsidies, legislation, I mean, I would argue that since the Paris Climate Accord, we have done everything we can on this planet to produce reliable renewable energy, and we simply have not been successful. And the fact is, we haven't displaced one kilowatt of fossil fuel use for energy since the Paris Climate Accord. 
So what you saw at COP26 last year was a reckoning that natural gas and nuclear power must be brought into the clean energy conversation. Otherwise, we will never achieve any of the climate goals that were set. Well, let's talk about the safety of nuclear because there is a, a, we, Australia has almost been spooked by you know the the negative uh, um, implications of nuclear. But when you look at the, the the cost in lives of producing energy from fossil fuels, from renewables, and from nuclear across the entire production process. Nuclear is the safest, isn't it? Is that right? It, it's absolutely the safest. And when you think about reducing the carbon footprint, and the one area that I think we are all in agreement on is that areas that are heavily polluted with large coal-fired plants kill people. And it's pretty straightforward. Now, you can argue climate change, but the thing we want to focus on is pollution. And when you compare uh, a coal-fired plant to a nuclear plant, in terms of how safe they are to build, how reliable they are, nuclear power is far and away the safest form of energy. And there have been sensationalized arguments against nuclear power with Fukushima or Three Mile Island or Chernobyl. But in fact, at Fukushima, for example, in Japan, not a single person was, was killed because of radiation. It was the tsunami. But there's a there's a sensationalism to nuclear power. And I would argue that if you believe in climate change or the concern about the carbon uh, or the, the, the Celsius temperature rise around the planet, then you should embrace nuclear power as a reliable source of energy. In the United States, for example, 20% of our energy is produced by nuclear power, but it's over 50% of our clean energy. And that's after a decade of, of renewable energy development. So for Australia to think about abundant baseload and clean energy, you have to think of all three. You can't just focus on clean at the expense of abundant and baseload. So I think rightfully so, it's time for this debate to occur in Australia. Well, let's talk about geopolitics now. In a recent essay in the National Interest, you said fledgling economies around the world are in dire need of reliable, secure energy. But the West is obsessed with renewables, as we've already discussed. You said, quote, this doesn't connect with the unprecedented and immediate energy needs of emerging regions who understand they can't industrialise their economies on the narrow shoulders of intermittent resources, unquote. As a result, Russia and China are realising this and offering developing nations any energy source they want. So, Mike, is the West's natural predominance in world affairs being undermined by this? It absolutely is. And the hubris of the five or six nations that have the luxury of pursuing renewable energy, such as the United States, Australia, the United Kingdom, and Germany, can do so because we already have power and abundant power. These, these, these nations that have yet to industrialize, we're asking them to skip the Industrial Revolution to focus on wind and solar, when in fact that will never allow the nation to industrialize. We've proven time and time again that the only reliable source of energy, be it fossil fuel, nuclear power, and hydropower, are required if a nation is going to grow and industrialize. And the fact is that COP26, Russia and China did not even participate. And the Chinese have built more coal fire plants last year than ever before. And for us to be shocked 
that Putin uses energy as a weapon is really naive. He's it, used energy as a weapon forever. It, well, it, it's not shocking at all if, it, to anyone who's been watching the watching geopolitics. But where do you think this will lead, Mike? You're an ex-Navy man and uh, clearly well-informed about the, the geopolitics of energy. Where is this heading? I think what's occurred since the invasion of Ukraine, and thankfully so, there's been an awakening that climate policy, which has driven energy policy for the last decade, can no longer be the way we think about energy. Energy security is how we should be thinking about energy policy. So what you're seeing in Europe right now and in the United States is an awakening that we have to ensure that these nations aren't dependent upon Russia and China for their sovereignty through energy and allow them to also be energy independent. Now we have a long way to go because we have really ceded this, this high ground, so to speak, to Russia with gas and to China with coal and nuclear power. So we have a long way to go. But, but the fact is, I think everyone has awoken to this fact that energy security should drive energy policy. And just quickly before you go, Mike, how quickly can we turn this around? It's not, a, not an overnight process, is it? It's not, but if you look at what has occurred just in the last six months, the EU has lifted the restriction on nuclear power development as part of the ESG taxonomy, if you're familiar with that, that taxonomy to apply capital to new energy solutions. Natural gas is now seen as a core support industry to Europe. Nuclear power is moving very quickly where 10 EU nations signed a decree that they all wanna pursue nuclear power. I think we can reverse course quite quickly if we recognize that renewable energy by itself cannot be your baseload and abundant source of energy. Well, I hope you can get the message across here in Australia as well, Mike. Thanks so much for your time. Thank you, Fred. That's retired US Navy Rear Admiral Mike Hewitt, who is now waiting on a call from Australian Energy Minister Chris Bowen about buying a few SMRs to solve our impending energy crisis. Call's all yours, Chris. Well, our education system and society in general has for decades been obsessed with casting dark shadows over our history, focusing on the evils perpetrated in the name of Western civilization, but none of the good things. Things like, you know, the fairest judicial system in history, respect for individuality and property rights, the arts, the joys of sport, free speech, and not least, a relatively civil political system. Instead, our kids are taught that we have caused nothing but genocide and misery. This, of course, gives woke people a fleeting feeling of moral vanity that until recently was felt only by people who made positive contributions to society. The most egregious victim of this has been the Catholic Church, which has been vilified mercilessly for its ill deeds while receiving no credit for its good ones. Sadly, this is as likely to come from within the church as it is from its legions of impassioned critics these days. Visiting Australia in 2008, Pope Benedict said, quote, I wish to thank the Aboriginal elders who welcomed me. I am deeply moved to stand on your land, knowing the suffering and injustices it has borne, but aware too of the healing and hope that are now at work 
rightly bringing pride to all Australian citizens, unquote. My next guest has recently written about this topic in The Spectator Australia, Rocco Loyakano. Welcome back to the show. Good evening, Fred. Good to be with you. Rocco, Pope Benedict said the healing had brought pride to Australians. Isn't pride a sin? <laughs> yes, excessive, excessive pride in, in terms of you know, selfishness and exalting oneself above, above others. Yes, that's definitely, that's definitely a, a sin. And as we see with this, with this woke culture, uh, in terms of virtue signalling, exalting oneself to, to show what they are potentially doing while not actually doing anything. Look at me, how good I am. I'm, I'm apologising, I'm welcoming these people, but you're not actually doing anything practical to solve the real problems that, that beset people. Well, he seems to also to be ignoring whatever good was done in the name of the Catholic Church, and there's a lot of it, isn't there? Yes, and that was seen particularly with uh, Benedict's successor, uh, Pope Francis, in, in Canada recently, when he went on a, a, a very long apology for everything that the church had done uh, to its indigenous, uh, to the indigenous peoples of Canada, saying that everything was done with the prism of, of within the prism of colonisation. Well, that ignores uh, the, the 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 martyrs, many of whom were from Pope Francis' own order, the Jesuits, um, who ministered uh, to to the Canadian indigenous people, who took on. Uh, their food and administered to them in terms of uh, bringing them education and 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 healthcare. And we this week we celebrate uh, in the Catholic Church there's a feast of another Jesuit, uh, Saint Peter Claver, who ministered in Colombia to to the slaves. Which now Colombia at the time was a huge uh, transit port for for for, for black slaves. And uh, he um, then in in the early 17th century. Uh, fought tirelessly to minister to them, to bring them food, to bring them comfort, and also campaign for the ending of the slave trade. Now, all these things are forgotten, and many of these uh, many of these uh, Jesuits were martyred for their faith and suffered terrible torture at the hands of the Indians. But of course, all that was all that was completely ignored in the Pope's speech. What examples are there of there in Australia? What are the better aspects of the history of the Catholic Church in Australia? Well, the, the, you mentioned in your introduction um, the, the rule of law and equality. I mean, that comes from uh, St Paul's letter to the Galatians where he says that there is no Gentile nor Jew, no slave, we're neither slave nor free, for we are, we are all one in Christ Jesus. That is the basic principle of equality uh, before the law, which comes from our Christian heritage. And in terms of the Catholic Church's contribution, well, you only have to look at um, the, where the migrants have come from that have contributed to this country, Southern Europe, Ireland um, that, have, that have helped build this country, but also in terms of schools, hospitals, universities. I mean, it was the intrusion of the state into education and into healthcare is a relatively recent phenomenon. Uh, it, was, it wasn't only in the 19th, wasn't all that long ago in the 19th century that if you were sick, you went to a Catholic institution. If you wanted an education, you went to a Catholic institution. Uh, these are the things that the Catholic Church has, has contributed. It's to, interesting to that Australian you bring society. up. It's interesting that you bring up those Southern Europeans that came out after the uh, after World War Two, because a lot of those people wound up being far more patriotic than some, you know, native or Australian-born people, didn't they? Uh, 
Well, that's for sure. And uh, I mean, you only have to, I can draw examples uh, from my family. Uh, you know, many uh, members of my family who came to this country are looking for a better life and, and a lot of their compatriots who, um, who were indeed uh, interned during the Second World War while their sons were fighting over in Alamein against the Italians still feel far more pride at being Australian um, than, as you say, many uh, Anglo-Saxons. So the, the main because manifest... this country gave them... Go on, go on. Sorry, Fred, because this country gave them what they sought, gave them, gave them freedom and gave them a chance at life and to, and to better themselves and provide for their children. So the main manifestation of all this historical uh, regret is in the apology to the stolen generations, which never seems to be accepted, I'm afraid. And now we have the voice to parliament. Both, both of these things, Rocco, divide us by race. Why is it that the people who claim to be non-racist are always the ones defining everyone by the colour of their skin? Well, again, it gets back to what we were talking about earlier in terms of pride, um, that, it make, that doing so makes them feel good, makes them that they're doing something um, and being able to show off their deeds. I mean, do not parade your good deeds before men, as our Lord said in the Gospels. But that, that is what this is all about. But as I said, it doesn't actually achieve any practical outcome. I, I recall John Howard once upon a time told a story that when he was opposition leader, he went into the centre of Australia and he kicked out all the white advisers um, and he listened to the Aboriginal women and he said, look, if there's one thing I could do for you, what is it? And all of them said, stop the gronk, stop the gronk. Uh, and, near, and none of this uh, you know, voice to parliament or apologies uh, has actually done anything practical to address uh, Indigenous disadvantage, has done anything to address alcoholism and, and, and abuse in Indigenous communities. Has, has done nothing to ensure that uh, Indigenous people get a better education, a better, start, a better start in life. It's all about seeming to be doing something rather than actually doing something. Well, sadly, Rocco, nothing's changed. I mean, we've got Senator Jacinta Nampajimpa Price saying exactly the same thing 20 years later. What do you think it will take to end all this? How do you break this cycle, Rocco? Well, again, we're not... It's, it's a... Conservatives now have to uh, not be so timid anymore and have to actually argue the point. We, when Conservatives haven't done so well at winning the argument. It's almost like, you hate to admit it, but taking a leaf out of the left's book. I mean, look, what, look at what they've done. Now, they've managed to win the argument, even though their argument is based a lot of the time on, on fallacies. We have to counteract that argument, not be timid in arguing, and Jacinta Price needs a lot more friends alongside her to, to argue the case. It was the same in, in, again in, in John Howard's time uh, when he was Prime Minister that he didn't have as many friends arguing for industrial relations reform and waterfront reform. He, I think him and Peter Reid said at the time, we wished we had a few more friends around the Cabinet table helping us make the argument. It's the same issue here. We, we have to get out there and prosecute the case and not be ashamed of prosecuting the case and not be unfortunately, overcome this fear of being silenced. OK, now let's move on to last week's Jobs Summit, which seemed a bit futile from my perspective. We saw a lot of political energy put into this summit last week. The irony of it all was that few of the people at the Jobs Summit had ever held down a real job themselves. Rocco, what do you think the Jobs Summit achieved, if anything? 
look, it, it achieved um, probably the um, the uh, media that, that I'm sure the government wanted uh, in terms of any practical outcomes. It was very myopic. Um, there, are, there are two things that I drew from it. One, it, it went back to the big government and big unions doing the bidding of the state, so corporatism, uh, whereas... Again, you know, our success as a, as a nation is based on unleashing the power of the individual um, to take risks and make the choices that suit him or her the best, and that's when this country performs well, when we allow those individuals to make those decisions rather than dictates um, from above. The other thing I think it was a, it was a missed opportunity in, in a couple of ways. One, um, the, this emphasis on, on immigration. Now, as a son of migrants, people say, well, why are you making this point? But the thing is that when my when my parents uh, came to Australia, working age Australians represented the vast majority of, of the population, and I think it was, um, and I think only one eighth uh, at the time. I'm just checking my statistics here. Eight percent, uh, rather, were were of pension age. You look at it now, whereas uh, the, the the tables have been reversed, and our and our fertility rates are actually actually quite low. And no government, uh, particularly over the last 15 to 20 years, has done anything to address that. And if you, it's only through creating a working age population that you can address these skills, skill shortages. Sure, migration can plug some gaps here and there, and no one's denying that. But to offer it as a panacea for a, a skill shortage, I think, is, is very myopic. Well, whatever the job summit achieved, it didn't damage or fail to achieve, I should say. It didn't damage the government in the polls. According to News Poll today, the federal coalition is at its equal lowest rating on record. Rocco, is this because it hasn't gone in hard enough against a Labor government that is committing the nation to fairly suicidal policies in some aspects? You can look at it, I think, in one of two ways. One, what well, we're three months into a new government, so we're probably well and truly still in the in the honeymoon period, um, and we've got a very fawning media that uh, is doing anything to promote um, this this new government and overlook its very its huge shortcomings. But also, uh, there's a lesson in there, I think, uh, or a takeaway possibly for the coalition and, and for Peter Dutton, is that as we're saying, look. Up until now, they probably haven't gone hard enough, but as the months uh, go on, as we get closer to the next election, that's something that they're going to have to do. I mean, at this point in time, what has Peter Dutton got to lose? Um, it's better to be right than popular, and he's got to go out there, particularly after the budget and in the months after that, when these cost of living pressures are going to bite and into the years ahead when these uh, mad green policies are obviously going to start biting, people will feel it in their hip pocket. And it's up to uh, Peter Dutton and the coalition to prosecute the case as to why these policies are crazy and why uh, the Conservatives should be entrusted um, holding on to true Conservative values as, as providing solutions to these problems rather than just labour light more of the same. Well, it's pretty easy to prosecute now. I mean, I was specifically referring to uh, renewables targets and energy policy. I mean, you only have to look at Europe to see that this is going to end in disaster. I mean, th these, are, these are easy runs to get on the board for the opposition, aren't they? And, and that's where uh, the opposition has to not be so timid um, and, and has to actually go out there and argue the case. And as you say, <laughs> they've got a clear example to point to. 
Um, and it was, I think it was about a year, it was about a year to 18 months ago that the European Union said to Australia, look, we won't entertain any trade deals, any free trade agreements unless you uh, fix up your climate policy. Well, look at Europe now, it's on its knees. <laughs> so, again, there has what we saw over the last eight and a half years of coalition government was too much timidity, um, and we, there's, there's no room for that anymore. At the, as I said, Peter Dutton has nothing to lose with these news poll numbers. He has to go for it and go for it hard. And finally, before you go, Rocco, Four Corners is promising a sensational expose of Qantas, alleging increased pressure and potential compromises on safety in the airline. We've all, nearly all of us have flown Qantas recently, Rocco. Do you think that airline deserves a bit of bad publicity at the moment? Um, look, Qantas, I don't think whether it deserves it or not, it's going to get it anyway. Um, but in terms of whether it deserves it, look, uh, Qantas over the last uh, few years um, has been one of the leaders in a lot of this virtue signalling um, in, in a lot of ways. Um, and uh, the, the consequences of uh, cost-cutting and, and shedding of staff are now being felt. Um, I, what was it in November? Whether they discussed the elephant, elephant in the room that will be uh, Alan Joyce's employment policies being four corners, I'm not entirely sure. But you only have to look at November 2020 when Alan Joyce was the first one to come out and say, look, we're going to impose a vaccine mandate. You won't be able to travel with us. You won't be able to work with us unless you've, unless you've had the vaccine. Well, that's being felt uh, incredibly now um, because of the, the, the shortages on the ground and in the air with the pilots and, and, the, and, the, and the flight crew. I mean, that's just one aspect of it. But again, go woke, go broke. <laughs> Never a truer word spoken, Rocco. Rocco Layakano, thanks for your time. Thanks again for having me, Fred. That's West Australian writer and law academic Rocco Layakano. And before I go, don't be surprised if Joe Biden calls Vladimir Putin this week and asks him not to intervene should the United States invade Poland next month. That's what Adolf Hitler did with Joseph Stalin in 1939, which led to Germany kicking off World War II. It makes as much sense as anything Biden has done for most of his catastrophic presidency and would fit nicely with the image Biden portrayed in his speech in Philadelphia last Thursday. The colours in the background, the Marines standing guard, the waving of the fists in the air, they were all reminiscent of the German Nazi party at their most powerful. As always, the funniest part of this is the response from those desperate to prop Biden up, despite acting more tyrannical in real life than Donald, than Donald Trump ever did on Twitter. In the speech, Biden called his political opponents threats to US democracy. At first, I was bewildered that Biden's team would be so blatant about his delusions of power and grandeur. There were only two possible explanations. Either the directors, speechwriters and designers behind this really wanted us to think that they were as totalitarian as the Nazi party, or they were so stupid that they thought such an exaggerated delivery would impress us. Well, turns out it was the latter. And as far as the leftist media were concerned, it worked. For the rest of us, though, it was further proof that Biden has lost the plot and has morphed from everyone's friendly uncle president to a dangerously deluded puppet.
Well, that's all from me tonight. Thanks for your company. Don't forget, Jake Thrupp is back in the chair for Alan Jones tomorrow night at 8 p.m. and will deliver a cracking show. And I'll see you straight after him at nine o'clock. Good night.